This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, welcome back to the program. Hour two, we'll be joined by uh, a couple of different defensemen from Hockey Past. Uh, Aaron Ward, former NHL defenseman, will talk about uh, Rod Brindamore. We'll talk about Paul Maurice as well. Uh, former Carolina Hurricane uh, Aaron Ward. And we'll talk to Ed Jovanovsky, former Florida Panther uh, analyst. Uh, now with that team, as it is game one, the Panthers facing off against the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, okay, to Ian Mendez. And uh, I'll, Ian, first of all, thanks so much for stopping by. Ian Mendez from The Athletic is a regular here on these um, airwaves. Uh, I want to get to a couple of things. I want to get to your Justin Pogge piece, uh, which yeah. I loved. Um, and uh, I want to get to the Ottawa Senators sale. But I want to read something here to our, our listeners and viewers that, uh, if, unless they're following you, they, they may have missed. Um, this is in response to a, a, a an act of kindness uh, by Sidney Crosby, yeah. and which, you know, his acts of kindness are, are multiple. And you write, when his career is finished, someone is going to be able to write a full book just based on behind-the-scenes acts of generosity and kindness from Sidney Crosby. The guy is legit, and there are probably hundreds of stories like the one below. And I've told the, you know, everyone, everyone has like a Sidney Crosby story. I think most people do have like a, a Sidney Crosby act of generosity story. You know, my buddy, uh, my buddy Shaz, who has a, a valet park, uh, a car parking service, um, was working at the Rogers Cup a few years ago. And he called me up and said, hey, I just, uh, I just did valet for, for Sidney Crosby. And you know what he did? And I said, I don't know, hit me. He said, you know, he asked me if there are any kids at a certain area where the, the Rogers Cup was being played. And uh, my buddy said, yeah, there are. And so he pulled out a Sharpie and like, I don't know, 50 8x10s or 5x7s. I'm not sure what they were exactly. And said, okay, I'm going to go sign autographs for for a half an hour. Can you can you just sort of come over and, and give me the tap and pull me out of the scrum? Because uh, I want to go watch the tennis, but I want to make sure that, uh, you know, I can you know help him put a smile on some kids' faces before I go and watch the tennis. So that's one of my many Sidney Crosby stories. So I wasn't uh, surprised when I saw your tweet saying somewhere down the road, someone's going to write a book just based on Sidney Crosby generosity stories. Yeah, he it truly right, Jeff. Like, there's a family. Real quick, there's a family here in Ottawa. They have a, a young uh, son. Well, he's about 15 years old now. His name's Matthew Paravan, and and Matthew has a rare neurological condition that uh, has really taken away his ability to kind of function like a normal teenager. Well, before this condition, uh, you know, befell Matthew, he was a he's a huge hockey fan, and he's been able to meet Sydney mm-hmm. a couple of times. Well, the family told me uh, last year, all of a sudden, they got this huge parcel in the mail and it was an, uh, a large kind of picture of, of Sid with their son that was taken when they, they met the, the, they were in Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic Sid connected with them anyway and they said we just don't understand like how did he even know where we lived like how did he how did he get this picture to us and they're like this this just speaks volumes about the guy so anyway as you know the guy is legit and uh, it truly uh, like, a, like just a yeah. Hall of Fame player and then an even better human being if that's possible Absolutely. Um, okay, park that. And before we get to the Sens sale, your latest piece on uh, former Team Canada at the World Juniors yeah. standout, uh, former Maple Leafs prospect and goaltender, uh, someone the Maple Leafs chose over Tuka Rask. We're trading Tuka. We're going with Pogi. Uh, a lot of it because of the heroics of the 2006 World Junior Hockey Championships, which I still maintain as a tournament that people put way too much stock in. And in this particular example, probably cost you know the the Maple Leafs the better of the two netminders. But um, as as you write, he's calling it a career. Uh, Thirty seven years old. I was always amazed at how well he handled the puck. Like I thought, if he ever made it as a legitimate, consistent NHL goaltender, he would automatically be the best puck handling goaltender in the league. Uh, only played a handful of games in the NHL, but if you tell a certain vint, if you just mention to a certain vintage of hockey fan the name Justin Pogi. You want to talk about stories and takes and thoughts coming out. He's always been a hot button around Ontario. Yeah, and you know what? And it was great. I, I, I was fortunate enough to be in, in Europe last week. and uh, was covering Team Canada's camp in Budapest, and there was Justin Pogge serving as a goalie coach. And so I was able to track him down and, and speak for a few minutes. You know what the most remarkable story that he told me, Jeff, and, he, and I put this in the, in the article that I wrote, and he played in that 2006 World Junior Championship in Vancouver, he played six games, gave up six goals in total, uh, had a shutout in the gold medal game. You know what he told me? He said before every game, hmm. 
he was so nervous, the anxiety was kind of building up. He had to take Pepto-Bismol before every game yeah. in that tournament. And I thought, wow, like imagine being a teenager. And, but this kind of speaks to exactly what you just said. Like, you know, the amount of pressure and attention that we put on these teenagers uh, for a tournament like oh, that, yeah. boy, it, it can be, it can be life altering, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it can. And I, I think that was one of the main reasons why. And, and I, again, like, I don't want to do like the historical revisionism. You know, now there's a lot of people like, oh, I would have taken Tuka Rask. Oh, no, the choice was Rask. And there are some, you know, people around the NHL who legitimately felt that way. But you know what it was like. Like the groundswell around Justin Pogge coming out of that World Juniors, yeah. that was going to be the Maple Leafs' choice. And rightly or wrongly, and probably wrongly, uh, it's all because of that two week slice of Justin Pogge's career. Yeah, and, and you know what I really liked with, with him, like speaking to him, like you said, he's 37 years old now. Like he doesn't speak with any degree of bitterness or think like, oh, I wish I wasn't in Toronto and maybe it yeah. would have been a different uh, situation if I'm in Carolina or, you know, somewhere where there's not that pressure. Mm-hmm. But he was, he's just, you know, he's very chill. He ended up with it. He said, look, I, I had a 17-year career and he just played the last, what, eight years, I think it was, in Europe and uh, his family's all over there. Yeah. And he's got, they've got two kids. And he's just, he's so happy. And that's what you want, right? At the end of the day, when an athlete wraps up their career, you want to see them satisfied totally. uh, when they look in the rearview mirror. And, and Justin Pogge, I can tell you this, is very satisfied uh, when, when he looks back. That is excellent, excellent news. Now, there's some uh, some excellent news on the horizon. We just don't know when. Um, <laughs> inching closer and closer now. Um, to a decision on who's going to own the Ottawa Senators. You know, Ian, just as a funny aside, Elliot was mentioning this on the podcast last week. He was talking to someone, a friend of his in the financial world, who was just amazed at how NDAs seem to not mean anything in hockey. That in the Uh business world, like information, the likes of which that we all have, like it doesn't get out. And he was essentially saying to Elliot, like, do NDAs have any meaning in hockey? Like you guys sign these things and then everyone just starts blabbing as if they never put their their signature uh, on 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 a piece of paper. Now... In our industry, that's great. That's fine. We dine out on it and it gives us plenty of, of grist for the mill. Um, but it, just as a phenomenon, is there, like at the beginning of this process, I thought it was going to be at a certain point really quiet and we would hear nothing. We wouldn't know the bids. We might not know the names involved. We would know very little. We know a lot. All right. Yeah. We think we know a lot and I, th- I think we do. Are you surprised that considering how much this is supposed to be a private process where everybody's NDA'd up, how much info is out there? You know, yes and no. I'll say no because I think part of the reason why stuff got out, Jeff, at least up until now, was I think that the, 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 the firm uh, GSP out of New York that's been charged with kind of, you know, creating the market, the bit. I think it was in their best interest mm-hmm. to create some interest and, and to generate publicity. And, and it's not a bad thing when Ryan Reynolds and Snoop Dogg and The Weeknd and all these. Uh, I mean, Rolling yeah. Stone did a story on the Ottawa Senators last week. Like, you can't tell me that that's not uh, good for the, yep. the product of the sale, whatever. So, but I will say, I don't know. And, and, and you know this as well. And Elliot's as plugged in as anybody. Uh, it feels to me like it's gone quiet in the last 36 hours. Like it, my feeling is now we're really at the point where it's, I, I'm finding it hard to extract information. Like I, like all I can tell is that somebody bid a billion. I can't tell you who. And and I would have thought that maybe the group that did bid a billion might be a little bit more inclined to let that be known. But I, I haven't been able to, to get it. I don't know that anybody else has either. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting to me that we're, we're at this point, and, and on our Monday, Jeff, I got the feeling that we would know today. Like, we, like people were telling me Thursday is a really big day. Uh, be, be prepared for Thursday. And now we're here on Thursday, and I don't, I don't think we're going to get anything today. I, and I could be wrong. And the other thing I know is um, don't believe a lot of things that you hear because, I mean, this, this entire process has been really unpredictable. You go back, we're closing in, I think yep. this weekend will be 200 days since the team was on the market. I don't think anybody in November thought we would get to the end of May and there wouldn't be a resolution on this. So it might take a few, few extra days, uh, but, but I do think that within, yeah. within the week we'll have an answer. 
You know, the, 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 the one bid that I really wonder about here is the Andlauer bid. And the, the reason I mention that is if you look historically at how the NHL has liked to do business now, did they like the publicity that Ryan Reynolds got them? To your previous point, absolutely. You know, as much as everyone's supposed to be, you know, uh, you know, suck a lemon on this one, everybody, like don't say anything. Uh, did they like, you know, the, the Ryan Reynolds charm offensive? Of course they did. Um, does wonders for the league, does wonders for the city, does wonders for the organization, all of it. But I, I look at Michael Andlauer, and he's a minority, minority owner in the Montreal Canadiens, um, you know, uh, co-owns the, uh, the, the Bulldogs as well, of the OHL with Steve Steos. Um, he's done things the way that the NHL wants, really quietly, no fanfare, go about this all sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, above the board, um, and, you know, not make any ripples in the water here, keep things nice and quiet. And I always go back to, you know, how, how the Winnipeg Jets were able to get the Atlanta Thrashers and that was stay quiet. Don't say a thing. No media leaks. Nothing. I do. I do really wonder about the Andlauer bid here. The NHL knows him. He's doing business the way the NHL wants. He's doing everything sort of by the book, Ian. So, yep. how would you handicap the Andlauer bid against some of the other bids that we see? Yeah, I, I like if you're asking me here on on Thursday to kind of uh, to to lay my odds. I do think that the two groups that have some familiarity with the NHL ecosystem, which would be Michael Landlauer and then the Kimmel family who owned a piece of the Pittsburgh Penguins, I would yeah. think, as you say, the NHL values a couple of things. One is that, that sort of cone of silence that you spoke of, but they love familiarity, don't they? Like, like they love the known commodity. Um, I do think yeah. that there's always a feeling with them too, Jeff, that, that, the the more simplistic that the bid is in terms of um, you know f- fewer investors or what like the, I I think if you're able to I my guess is that the Ann Lauer and Kimmel bids are probably somewhat uh, less complicated than and I'll, I'll use the Nico Sparks Group as an example like I have no idea I have no idea about any of their financing but um, that's one of the questions I would have is what do all of these structures look like? And the only reason why I would say Andlauer and uh, Kimmel are ahead is because they, I think they know how to make this. They've been, they've seen it, right? They've, they've been at board of governors meetings yeah. or they've been privy to, so they know, I oh, think yeah. how to structure a bid versus some newbies that come in mm-hmm. that I think they're good for the money. I, I think if you get to this stage, I think you're good for the money. I, I like, I don't think the NHL, they, they've been through the John Spano thing. Like, let's be honest. They're, they're not going to get yeah, fooled yeah. again in, in the year 2023 on that. So I think they're all good for the money. It's just a question of how is that, how is that structured? And I think the least complicated deal will end up being the most attractive to the league. Hmm. The, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about through all of this here is – is the money the most important thing? Is the decimal point the most important thing? Or are there other elements to a bid where um, uh, the Melnick daughters and the NHL will look at and say, well, it's not the highest bid. It's still in the ballpark. But here's why we should go with the lower bid. Or do they have a fiduciary duty just to say, we're taking the highest bid here because we have creditors? Well, the one thing that was uh, pointed out to me, too, is that this is a little bit different in that this technically is an estate sale. Like, this is, you know, Eugene Melnick passed away. Like, there, there is a little bit of a different wrinkle to this one than just, uh, you know, a classic sale of a, a team. Uh, so, it, on some level, I do think that there's a financial obligation to take the most amount of money because this, this is an estate sale. But um, I do think that there's also an obligation to make sure that, uh, like I said, this is the least complicated deal. Like, like if someone's going to offer you 900 and, you know, a lot of that is cash heavy versus here's a bid for a billion, but a lot of it is, is leveraged against loans and, and, and feels like it's a, you know, 50, yeah. 50 split between like that. I, I think that absolutely becomes uh, part of the, the factor, like how much of this is uh, stability. And, and look, uh, one thing with Ottawa too, you don't want to, 
you don't want to take on a huge debt load. I, I don't think this is a license to print money uh, owning the Ottawa Senators. I think you have to be real careful about getting into a significant amount of debt. Like We've seen it in previous ownership groups here. Uh, you want to make sure you make a sound investment here. So I, I don't think that the league, I, I don't think you want to get into a situation where the owner just jumps in and, by the way, you owe 380 or $400 million to the bank right off the hop, and, and you have different cash calls to investors. I don't know that that, like, so yeah. at the end of the day, I do think if you can get a bid that's, uh, maybe it's a little bit less, but it's a little bit more financially uh, sound, so to speak, I, I could see that being, uh, a little bit more appealing. But my understanding too, Jeff, is I think the highest bid was around a billion. And I, I get the sense that the lowest bid was somewhere just shy of 900. So, you know, I, it, let's call it at most $150 million gap. Maybe it's only a hundred million. I don't know. Is that a, is that a huge yeah. difference? Not, I don't know. I, that, that's a, that's an interesting question though, for sure. It, it is interesting, and, and I think your point's a good one. Uh, on the one hand, it is an estate sale, but it's an estate sale that needs Board of Governors approval uh, to, to go through. Like, this isn't this isn't a, 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 a standard estate sale. A- anyhow, um, real, real quick, i got about 30 seconds. What is the Ottawa market doing with this now that there's no Ryan Reynolds shiny toy anymore? Yeah, and I, I love your term, the uh, the charm offensive. By the way, that was uh, that was a good way of uh, describing it. <laughs> Look, because we, we this this yeah. market fell in love with them, and, and it's hard not to fall in love or be enamored yeah. with uh, a person who handles himself. You know, we're talking about the way Sidney Crosby handles himself. I, you know, all the stories I hear yep. about Ryan Reynolds, it feels awfully similar. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of disappointment. But Jeff, you got to remember where we're coming from. We're coming from an ownership group here that, in the past, uh, there was a disconnect with the community. Didn't spend on payroll, uh, all, all the things that w- w- people went through here. At the end of the day, uh, a celebrity would be nice, but what would be the number one thing for people is committed, deep-pocketed, stable ownership here. Yeah, right. And uh, w- one thing I should point out, too, now that Reynolds is uh, out, you can reclaim your title as the most charming man in Ottawa. So congratulations uh, on getting <laughs> your belt back, Ian. That's Come back on getting your title back. <laughs> that's, that's Kyle. Come on, he's got the, he's got the good feathers, but you you've been you've been there longer. Your your your, your roots are deeper, but he, I, I will give him that. Kyle's got the good yeah. feathers, and he delivers well, and he has he has his own brand of charm too. Uh, Ian, yeah. thanks as always for stopping by. It should be a I, I, I'm with you. Like I thought we'd have something by the end of the week. We'll see if this bleeds into the weekend, and you know, pardon the pun with the Kilmore Group there, and we'll see what happens uh, at the end uh, coming into next week. Uh, Ian, thanks as always. You be well. All right, you too. Thanks for having me. There is Ian Mendez from The Athletic, uh, the Ottawa sale. We kind of thought we'd have something this week. Listen, maybe we get the surprise and something comes out today and the Ottawa Senators have a new owner. Doesn't really feel that way right now. We shall see tomorrow on the weekend. We'll see. We'll see. Coming up, we're going to get back on the uh, Game 1 page. It is the... Carolina Hurricanes at PNC Arena hosting the Florida Panthers. Aaron Ward's going to stop by here in a couple of moments. We'll talk about the Hurricanes at Jovanovski. Yes, we're going defenseman heavy in hour two. Uh, Joe Bocop stops by to talk to us about the Florida Panthers. Plenty of grist for the mill as finally. Man, did that layoff feel like it took ages? Was it just me? You're getting that hamster wheel of every day, right? And then you miss a couple of days? Getting back to hockey, folks. Game one tonight. Hour two is on the horizon. Keep it here. Sportsnet Radio Network. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And tonight we get back to playoff action. Eastern Conference Final Game 1, PNC Arena in Raleigh, North Carolina. It is the Carolina Hurricanes facing off and hosting the Florida Panthers. Uh, Front and center in this one, the two head coaches. Paul Maurice, Florida Panthers, Rod Brindamore, Carolina Hurricanes. And as we talked about to kick off the show, these two have what we like to refer to as a past. Aaron Ward joins me, uh, Stanley Cup champion with the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, knows Paul Maurice, knows Rod Brindamore as well. Uh, Aaron Ward joins me now. Wardo, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. There's a little bit of a buzz going on in Rollywood right now. Um, so 
Yeah, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> I got all these people that I have all these people that that have just suddenly remembered that I played with. Uh, I mean, not I'm not talking about you guys, but I have these media members who come in and are like, "Hey, can you give me some like little clip on Roddy Brindamore?" I'm like, "I got plenty on Roddy." Yep. <laughs> okay, well then, yeah, listen. I I actually want to talk to you about something that happened right at the end of Rod Brindamore's Rod Brindamore's career. So the uh, the 2009 uh, uh, 2010 season. So uh, I know you went to to, to Anaheim to, to finish up that season, but it was it was let's just say awkward that year with Rod Brindamore and then head coach Paul Maurice. Uh, Christine Simpson sat down with Brindamore. You know, I was in Raleigh for a couple of days doing some player interviews. Simmer sat down with Rod Brindamore and Paul Maurice. I want to play something for you and just get your reaction to it because Brindamore and you guys were players at this point. Paul Maurice is the head coach uh, of the Carolina Hurricanes. Here's Christine in conversation. It's about a 30-second clip, Aaron. This, um, this is Christine in conversation with Rod Brindamore. Have a listen to this. So, at the time, though, as you said, that the, the end of your playing career, mm-hmm. I mean, he sat you a game, yeah. he, t- yeah. he took away the captaincy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Basically, you bought his, uh, basically, you couldn't do much more to, <laughs> like, to a guy that, to be honest with you, I mean, I think I did it right. My most, you know, oh, like, yeah. I don't know that he would do that again, you know, because mm. I think, like, I learned a lot from that. I, yeah. I learned that's not how you treat your guys that do it right. Interesting. And your older guys. Yeah. You know, like we had Justin Williams here at the end. Like I said, I'm not doing that to him. You know, like there's, there's a way to do it. Right. And I think, I think so I, you do learn. But again, it's, I, I don't have any hard feelings toward him you on don't. it. He made a decision on what he thought was best for the team. Sure. So, Wardo, what do you think of that answer? Uh, he's not wrong, and I actually got to tell you, I think he's holding back, uh, indicting the people that were guilty of, of yeah. all that. I don't necessarily know if, um, like, listen, let's just establish, in 2009, 2010, I was there for all that. Um, it was one of the most embarrassing parts of my career. I was put on waivers that year. Never imagined that would be, be happening. Uh, we had a fire sale. I think seven guys in less than an hour were traded at trade deadline, and it was basically, you know, someone walk out the bench and, give you the, you know, come here finger and you'd be gone. You'd be heading off to another town about that situation. I don't think there's a better word in the English language to describe that situation, but the all encompassing environment that existed in Carolina at that time is just other than dysfunctional that I think maybe in this case, the question was posed to Rod and it falls on, on Paul Maurice because of their intersection right now in the playoffs. But the truth, a lot of the blame lies with Jim Rutherford. And what was happening was we had a we had a GM who had a tight relationship with an owner, and the expectation after having been in Car- oh, been in Boston the year before, Carolina takes us out and, and fails to advance to Stanley Cup Finals after they don't beat Pitt. I think there was an idea that they just needed a few more pieces. So uh, somehow someone didn't do their job or their homework, and they reacquired me, and I came in there, and we had a group of players that were, that basically endured a year-long epic failure. So at some point during that season, a decision was made that you needed to transition the leadership and the voice that existed in that locker room to Eric Stahl. And the problem for Stahlzy is Stahlzy didn't ask for this, right? you got a young guy that's in there. He's, he's more or less modeled himself, and a lot of guys have modeled themselves after Rod Brindamore, and Stalzi's put in a tough situation because when it's brought to his attention and to his doorstep, yeah. what's the guy going to do? Say, no, he's not going to take the captaincy? Of course he is. But the, the, the process and the failure to handle things properly, and, I, and there was an analogy when you played for the Carolina Hurricanes back in the day. It, was, it, was, it went, there's the right way, there's the wrong way, and then there's the Canes way. And they handled this the Canes way by sitting us in the locker room. I remember the disgusted feeling and the, and the discomfort because you're witnessing literally a, a human car accident happening in the locker room when Jim Rutherford steps up and starts to explain to this locker room why we're making this change at this point. Like, it's already been a tough season, right? Not, the expectations are, are not being met from a personal standpoint or a team standpoint, and now you got a guy coming in there, so... Yes, Paul Maurice clearly has to uh, give a blessing to making it that type of change as the head coach. But I would say that a lot of the blame lies above him in an office that exists three floors up and, and on the other side of the, of the building from our locker room. 
So just so just so I'm clear, our listeners are clear, our viewers are clear. This was a decision that was made above Paul Maurice, uh, and whether it got his blessing or not, this is what was going to happen with the Canes. Yeah, like like I said, I can't I can't, I can't convey. Listen, things had to change, but that is not what you yep. change. You don't. You don't take the guy who's your inspirational leader. He, you don't take the guy who sets the perfect example every single day by being the first guy that, that, that is in the locker room, the last guy that's in the locker room. He makes the team choice before himself every single time. He has for the length of his career from the first day, from his inception in the league till the day he steps out, he, you, couldn't, you couldn't create or design a, a better more prototypically perfect hockey player than Rod Brindamore. And so how they handled it mm-hmm. from a player's standpoint was utterly disgusting. And, and, but we, we have no say. We are, we are a failure as a team. We're witnessing this happen. And honestly, the, the ship sank way faster. Like, we didn't just run aground. We basically, we basically split apart in that locker room the moment they did this because we all know this is not how you do it. There's, mm-hmm. there's a level of... There's a level of like integrity that the National Hockey League and hockey overall as a game holds themselves to, and this is this is not how it's done. So all I'm telling you is, from my experience in that situation, Paul Maurice had a role yep. in that, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put the majority of the blame on the shoulders of Paul Maurice. He does bear some blame, but beyond that, not not all of it. This one's on Rutherford. Um, how was Rod Brindamore through all of it? Because, you know, in that clip, he talked about how this provided, you know, this framework for how not to do it when they had to make, you know, a similar decision around Justin Williams with the Carolina Hurricanes. How was Brindamore through all of this as a teammate? And, you know, what was, what was he like? Because, you know, you mentioned, you know, off the top when you heard the clip, he's holding back. And I'm with you. I think that, that Brindamore in the interview with, with Christine Simpson, I still think he wanted to be as diplomatic as he could. Um, but I'm with you. I, I still think that there was some some holding back well, there. How was Brindamore you, you and I, during that season? You and I are, you and I are doing media. Right, we we don't have that attachment to the game like Roddy does. Roddy has to hold himself to a certain level yeah. of integrity as a head coach that represents an organization, and you really, and and this is almost an endorsement again of he's still doing it. You want to keep the focus on the game and about the players. So yes, the media has 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 a responsibility to report and give full disclosure on exactly what has gone on in the past and and the storylines that may be present in this situation. But Roddy still tries to do everything he can to, to establish his level of integrity and still show he's the same consistent, good-natured, honest individual. So for him in this situation to hold back, I think he, he has no option but to. Sure. What was he like that season? Like, as, as a team, like, I'm sure all you guys are like, oh, this is awful what's happening to, to Brindamore here. What was Rod like? I wouldn't say like here. I'm going to be honest and transparent. If it was me, I'd, I'd be burning it down and be scorched earth. I'm like, you know, if, if, if I've accomplished what Roddy's accomplished, if I've dedicated myself to this organization in a town and let's, let's be truthful. I mean, this, this team came here in 1997 and, and started playing in Greensboro. They got to Carolina and I got here, I think a year after they had moved to Raleigh. Um, there was a level of growth of the game that was evidently occurring every single week. It wasn't a yearly thing. It was a weekly thing. And the players played mm-hmm. a massive role in the cultivating and creation of, of a following within this town. Roddy was the key piece there. Because in a, if you know the Southern environment and, and living in the South, they appreciate honesty. They appreci- appreciate integrity. They, impre- they appreciate a workmanlike, just what Roddy was all about. He still managed to somehow maintain that level of integrity through the process. It's not to say that he didn't withdraw a little bit because, hey, listen, you pull the C off, you, you naturally can't be the normal guy. It's not your locker room. It's not yeah. your voice, right? And he still gave himself, like, Eric Stahl did nothing wrong. And again, another testimony to how great a guy he is. He was there still with him under his wing, trying to help Stalzi, you know, find his voice, find the right moment, learn from bad situations. And let me tell you, that year there was lots. There was a litmus test for bad situations uh, every game. We 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 were epically bad, and it was toxic everywhere. So, 
Roddy did, Roddy did more in the face of the adversity and the embarrassment that comes with getting the C taken off your, off your jersey after you've dedicated everything you have to an organization and still stay in town um, that I don't think many people had within them. Like I, 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 I can guarantee you 99.9% be bitching to the media or, or finding a way for their agent to, to stir it up. Roddy did nothing of that. You know, one of the things that's, um, I mean, Brendan Moore has done a number of impressive things in the game. One of the things that really impresses me about a co- about him as a coach is he's done, for my money, one of the hardest things to do, and that is transition from an assistant coach to a head coach with the same organization and still get buy-in from the players. I mean, you know what it's like when it's assistant coach, it's all about, oh, well, you know what the head coach was really trying to say. You try to massage in what is generally a rough message from the head coach. Uh, Hey, I'm your buddy. I'm the assistant coach having a barbecue this weekend. Well, you and the wife and kids come on over, uh, you know, sit out on the back deck, tell some stories. It'll be wonderful. And then you become the head coach. And, you know, the guy that was inviting me to barbecues last week is now bag skating and scratching me. It's a really tough transition to make. You can make it going from an assistant coach position to a head coach position in another organization. But with the same team, that's difficult. What is it about Rod Brindamore, Aaron Ward, that allows him to make that, allowed him to make that transition seamlessly? Uh, again, we, we'll go back to the analogy of there's the right way, there's the wrong way, and there's Kane's way. And to set this up, you're absolutely correct. And, and I've gone through it over the course of my career, and guys talk about having guys as assistant coaches in other towns and coming to new teams and having that assistant now as a head coach. And there's like a, what we call the fraud alert, that he's nowhere near the right. same guy, his level of integrity, his, uh, his, his ability to relate to you, it's all gone. He's now the commander-in-chief, and he's running the, ch- the tight ship. What happened with Roddy was, Roddy was put in a situation here It's to prove himself. If you, if you go back to when the position was open as a head coach, I think they, it was more or less prove it, right? It was a one year at $300,000. Like, yeah. this town was getting, this organization was getting mocked for, like, who the hell pays the National Hockey League coach 300000 bucks? You got guys, I mean, you got... Mm-hmm. Bab's basically negotiating his own contract in the media at the time, like how great he is. I mean, just ask most of these coaches. There are very few and select coaches that will be humble enough, have enough humility to look at a situation and say, you know what? I should prove myself. And Roddy was that guy. So he, he signed on with Carolina for 300 K guys are scratching their head. Like, Oh, this is a no win situation for him. And what he managed to do was not just maintain who he was, which is a very tough job. And the truth is, I mean, Roddy doesn't have the ability to change. And I think that's one of the things that most guys recognize as players that play for him and guys that played with him. Roddy is who he is to the core. So he maintained a high level of integrity as assistant coach and just transported as a head coach. And when you are Rod Brindamore, the player, and you have stories abound from guys that played with him, play guys that played against him. And and it's you know not it's not the rod the bod stuff it's what he put into being rod the bod. There's a level of investment that's consistent over decades to be that guy. And when you get to be a head coach, you have ready mix automatic respect, unlike any other coach that steps in because you played the game away that most guys couldn't. And you did it for a very long time. So I think that's one of the stories as to why he's been so, so, so successful as a coach is, is that. And then you go back to the interview with Christine Simpson. The relatability of a guy that, that has gone through the crap to then take that lesson, learn it, and implement it in his own life. And, and, and yeah. let's be honest about hockey players. Whatever you know about them, essentially they're like every other human. When you get to a team, you're part of a team, but individually you want to feel like you're understood. Rod Brindamore, and I'll tell you from talking to guys that played with him and still as I've seen him, uh, I see him now. He will make every attempt to know you, to get to, to, to understand you, and that goes the distance for especially these modern-day players. Like They're so in tune with themselves. They want people to know about them and understand them, yeah. and Roddy does that. You see those clips in the locker room of, of his motivational speeches? They resonate because they know that he, when he says that he believes it is, it's not a, a bunch of uh, hot garbage that is, is being said for a camera and for show. 
So a remarkable guy. Um, and he was a big part of that uh, Stanley Cup winning team in 2006 um, that you were a part of as well. Um, I know I always bang this drum. I still thought Corey Stillman should have won the Conn Smythe that year, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, when you look back at it now, I mean, that's like such a zenith of everyone who's gone through his career uh, winning the Stanley Cup. Everybody dreams about it, getting my name scratched. I can go to Young and Front Street and, you know, go to the Hall of Fame and see my name on, you know, the, the, the greatest trophy in all of sports. When you look back on it you know now uh, 2023 uh, you know this occurred in, in 2006 what do you think about like because I'm sure over the years Aaron different things have resonated at different times for you about that stretch of games that Stanley Cup the the series wins the entire season but as you get older like what stand, stands out as most important for you at this point in your life I think 2006 was a lesson of adaptability it's that we, we got in, and, and Laviolette was presented to us as our head coach late in the season in 0405. We went through a lockout. And we all come back. We have no idea what to expect. And Laviolette put out some mandates, and those mandates across the board were, were um, select for individuals. Mine was I couldn't play for him at 227 pounds. I had to come back and, and be 212. I was a veteran in the latter stages of my career, and he's telling me, you're going you're gonna to evolve out of this game if you don't make this change. And he did all these things for all these guys. And what he did was, so we, we came back, we honored what he asked. And when we got there, he changed all the thinking of us as hockey players. A lot of the guys there, like we had a motley crew of veterans. We had a lot of second liners, third liners that were successful, but really hadn't achieved a high level of success or necessarily met their ceiling over the course of their career. We had a guy like Ray Whitney who was getting paid by three teams at the same time. And Rutherford put yeah. together this team, and we, we, when we first got there, we were like, this is a talented team, but we don't really know what the identity of this team is going to be. Laviolette came in and pushed our boundaries and made us uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is the, the, the past hockey game was always go to practice, go home. Come to the game, go home. Don't, don't invest in your teammates other than the time you're at the rink. Laviolette changed that. He made us, in the first two weeks, go sit in Monday Night Football and sit not just with players and wives, but with coaches and their wives. And, oh, my God, our general manager brought his wife, and it was uncomfortable. But by month two or three of doing this, we realized, like, we're all doing the same thing for the same purpose. We're all collectively trying to achieve the same goal. And there was a bond and a tightness mm. that he created from pushing our boundaries and comfort with what we had learned to be as hockey players in the past to now we all had to throw it out the door. And we began to have fun. And when we began to have fun, which was not really a word you described in the National Hockey League about playing the game – we came together, we found success, and with that success, everybody was having success. I had a career year point-wise. I wasn't even an offensive defenseman. He changed how you thought about yourself as a player. Like, no matter if you're a fourth liner or a first liner, you had to be up in the play. You had to play the same style. And the, the coolest part was when the, this management group decided that we were good enough that they went out and got guys like Recky and Waite. That was the single greatest endorsement of us as a team and what we accomplished that we deserved hmm. and were given an opportunity to elevate our level of talent and play uh, to, to make a run for it. And, and that is what I remember. We, ha we had to adapt on the fly to what made us uncomfortable, but what made us uncomfortable made us successful. You know, one of the, one of the things that that still stands out. It's funny. I was I was just there for a couple of days quickly, just quick in and out, and do a couple of interviews and talking to some people around the rink and people at the organization. The, the one thing, and these are longtime Canes employees, uh, the one thing that still stands out that I that I think about every now and then, and I certainly think about come playoff time, is that game seven. Everybody, every single fan stood for three periods, like from the beginning of the game to the end of the game. It was super loud, and I've seen fans stand for the first 10 minutes. Oh, it's so exciting. I've never seen an entire arena stand for three periods. What do you remember from that? Um, I remember the tension. Like, I, 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 the things I remember most about my career are, are things that make you uncomfortable. And what makes you uncomfortable is what you can't control as a player. So I remember... I'll give you an example. In 97, 98, I was driving to, from the, from the uh, Athenium Hotel to Joe Louis Arena. We're playing Philly for the closeout game, game four. 
and it, I was having out-of-body experiences. I couldn't control my level of excitement, but it was actually nervousness. And, and I was observing things I didn't observe. I couldn't remember. I remember a guy hanging off with a, with a broom and a, and a Red Wings flag off a bar that I, as I was turning left. That was 1997. I still remember it was like yesterday. In 06, there was a feel to the town. I'd been here since 2001, and there was, there was an aura about being around here for that Game 7 that there was a tension in the air of a town that never experienced it. And I drove to the rink, and for the first time, I got to be, was 2006, I've been 33 years old. I've never puked in the, over the course of my life from anxiety or, or nervousness. I had to pull over on the side of the road in the highway to Game 7 and let it fly in a suit uh, on the shoulder wow. of, of three-lane traffic. And so what I remember is exactly what you said. When we got there, there was like this feel. There was a feel about being in the locker room. There's a feel of stepping out of the locker room into an empty building with the flags on there. And when they populated the stands of the crowd, there, there was like this euphoric like boost. And I, I would tell you that's one of the reasons why we got the jump as a team. And people say, oh, our fans. No, I'm, I'm dead serious. Like to see and hear the vibration and feel like everything was coming across I, I, I want to honestly ask some of the Edmonton Oilers, like, was it ominous? I mean, we, we played game six, and, and Edmonton was amazing. But I felt like our guys stepped yeah. up even more in game seven, and that's what I do remember. I do remember no one sat down. And we were sitting down, and we're like, what the hell is up with this crowd? Like, where's this energy coming from? And it was nonstop. <laughs> and so they, they, they yeah. even stood as we, went off, we, as we went off, and we came out of the locker room, and the clock's not even running, and they're all still standing, and they're all still cheering at that point. And that was like, this is yeah. this is the the, hockey, the game of hockey is, is there's a coming of age in, in Carolina right now. It 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 has arrived. It was tremendous memories, uh, and just a tremendous Stanley Cup final as well. And who doesn't love a game seven? Let, let me let me finish up here with you, Wardo, and, and just ask you about this year's edition of the Carolina Hurricanes. Like right now. If, uh, if the Carolina Hurricanes won the Stanley Cup right now, I would have a really hard time figuring out who the Conn Smythe Trophy winner was if it was going to be a member of the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, who does it for you with this Hurricanes team? If you could isolate one player, I don't know if you want to say who your Conn Smythe you know, uh, pick would be if it's the Carolina Hurricanes, but is there one player that you can't keep your eyes off of on Carolina? Okay, there's going to be a bias here. You understand this, and I and I want to give it to the decor because I'm a former defenseman. I know, um, but I would say this: there, the the fact that this is not a massive market, the guys don't get their just due because they don't get the the publicity or the exposure. Jacob Slavin has a Nick Lidstrom-esque play to, uh, uh, air to his play, and what I mean by that, 100%. from a coaching standpoint, from a fan standpoint, when the man is on the ice you're almost put in a place of ease knowing that the right decision will be made. He will orchestrate his team properly. He will, he will, he will almost provide a calming nature out there, and there, there will be no frazzle sense about the game. He is in such control of not just his game, but almost dictates the play like Nick Lidstrom. And Nick Lidstrom used to do it, and I'd sit on the bench, and I'd, I'd watch him play, and I'd be like, he, he's not sweating. It's effortless. He's got a smile on his face. And he's not like he's not hard nosed. <laughs> he's just perfectly positioned every single time with his yeah. feet. He's a great skater. He sticks in the lane. He sticks poke checking. That for me is Slavin. But here's the thing: you don't get a consummate for that. It's just simply not going to happen for him, right? So that's that's the difficulty. I am in agreement. I think the biggest this is if any year if this team went on and we we kind of went oh the way of like it's it's a sum of the parts team here in Carolina that this that the most valuable player on this Carolina team is their system. It's not an individual. It's how they play. And the fact that uh, 12 forwards, six defensemen all play to that system and orchestrate it well is why they will achieve this success. So yeah, one guy, it doesn't exist. I do have to give, I do have to give credit to one, one person though. Here in Carolina, Burns, Shea, Pesci get all the, all the attention. Brady Shea to me is the most undervalued overlooked guy Dude, his sorry, I, I used dude in an interview. Sorry, his point total, his impact <laughs> offensively is not respected because he's overshadowed by all those yeah. guys I just mentioned. But if you watch him in the game, yeah. I didn't even know this. I I got him from New York. I'm like, ah, whatever. And he gets here. I'm like, this guy's impressive. So 
it's again mm-hmm. system guy putting putting it in the work and and man is he look good you can dude me anytime, Wardo. You can dude me anytime. Um, <laughs> that, was, that, that was very I kept, unprofessional. I kept you a long time. Oh, no, yeah. Good. Because I, I like you and I are noted for our professionalism. Yeah, you and me are noted for our professionalism, Aaron. Um, this is Never great. Listen, uh, enjoy, enjoy game one. Ramble. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you're the best, man. Let's uh, let's catch up and do this again real soon. Game one tonight. Uh, enjoy it. Uh, it should be good. We'll see if they're standing, and if so, how long? Uh, because, listen, man, 2006 was special. That crowd was phenomenal. Anyhow, thanks for sharing the memories and the thoughts and the uh, editorial as well uh, about the situation between Rod Brindamore uh, and Paul Maurice going back into 2009, 2010. Thanks, Wardo. We'll talk soon. All right, thank you. There is Aaron Ward, former NHL defenseman, Stanley Cup champion, 2006, uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes. You know, one of my favorite, uh, on, on another show, maybe Carolina makes it to the final, we'll, we'll get Wardo back on it and talk about this. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite things, was um, at the end of that Stanley Cup final, uh, Hockey Night in Canada had, you know, the montage of um, all the players and, you know, who their favorite hockey player was. And there's a, a lot of, you know, the obvious ones, you know, superstars you grow up idolizing. And Aaron Ward said Bob McGill. And the backstory to that one is I think it was at ok- Okanagan Hockey School in, in British Columbia. And uh, Big Daddy was, was one of the instructors. And Wardo was like either homesick or wanted to quit, wasn't enjoying hockey. And Bob McGill essentially took him under his wing, helped him find his love for the game as a young, young man, uh, helped him you know, rekindle this love affair with, with hockey. And then it was off to, to, to greater fortunes and culminated in a Stanley Cup win in 2006. And, and I just love that Aaron Ward never forgot that story. And when it was his time to talk about his favorite hockey player, you know, it was the guy that really saved his hockey career as a young man. And, uh, and that's Big Daddy Bob McGill. Always love that. And interesting story there with uh, with Rod Brindamore and Paul Maurice, and introducing the uh, the Jim Rutherford angle to all of this, and uh, the changing of the leadership as orchestrated by above. Interesting as things start to play themselves out. Thirteen years later, uh, as Rod Brindamore faces off against Paul Maurice, coach versus coach. Uh, it is the Carolina Hurricanes and the Florida Panthers tonight. Seven thirty pregame show with your host Ron McLean. Check out Christine Simpson's. Excellent piece uh, with both Rod Brindamore and Paul Maurice. That gets underway at 7.30 Eastern. Uh, that's your pregame show, Hockey Central. And the puck drops uh, just after 8 o'clock at PNC Arena between these two fine teams. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Hurricanes. Get on the Panthers page next. Ed Jovanovsky stops by, uh, analyst for the Florida Panthers, former NHL defenseman. Jovo Cop is next as we get you ready for Game 1 tonight. This is the Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Uh, I want to thank Aaron Ward for stopping by the program to talk about, amongst other things, the Carolina Hurricanes in 2006. My next guest is going to talk to us about the Florida Panthers in 1996 uh, en route to a Stanley Cup appearance against the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, He is former Florida Panthers defenseman, now Florida Panthers analyst. He's the great Ed Jovanovsky, and he joins me now. Ed, thanks so much for doing this. How are you today? I'm well, Jeff. Uh, Glad to be part of your show. Well, it's uh, it's a delight having you. Uh, one of my favorite Windsor Spitfires ever, and that is a very long list because that organization has produced some some very fine players. Um, you know, I was just talking to Aaron Ward about his experiences, uh, Stanley Cup final, his Hurricanes beat the Edmonton Oilers uh, in a great a great seven game series. Um, Florida Panthers, nineteen ninety six. Uh, you're a rookie. Um, you know, just drafted first overall. Uh, what do you remember from that run, which had, amongst other things, the rat phenomena? Right, yeah, that that was obviously, you know, a crazy, uh, you know, thing that occurred throughout that year with the rats. But I think, you know, honestly, Jeff, it, it's just a blur. You know, you're a teenager. Now you're, uh, you know, you're you're getting into the playoffs. And I remember heading into the playoffs, a nice little run for the guys heading into the playoffs. And, um uh, you know, just facing Boston, you know, we were the fourth seed in that one. So 
I guess you can say somewhat favored, but um, just kind of getting through that hurdle and, and now getting to the big boys with, with Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh, I think for me, you know, I didn't know what to think being so young. I think just kind of go out there and playing <laughs> and just kind of following the leader type of thing. So many veterans on that group with an excellent goaltender. And the next thing you know, hey man, you're on the biggest stage, you know, you know, playing the Stanley Cup final. Um, it would have been nice to grab that one. Uh, but faced a very, very good Colorado team. And, um, yeah, but it was a fun ride, especially we had a couple of myself, uh, Rhett Warner being the young guys on that team. It's pretty neat experience for us, you know, to experience all that. But it was uh, certainly a fun ride and just kind of reminiscing back, you know, kind of what the guys are going through right now. It's been a nice ride for, you know, for South Florida. Yeah, what do you think? I mean, I, I want to circle back to 96, but I, I do want to make this about, you know, tonight's game one and uh, the Florida Panthers so far this season. What do you, like, what do, like, for younger players, like, what what are some of the, the, the emotional highs and lows that you go through during something like this? Like, if the Florida Panthers this year are going to make it to the Stanley Cup final, um, like, what are some of the things that the players are going to have to have to get comfortable with? Well, I think we all know that, you know, it's a, it's a big stage. I mean, obviously hockey and whatever part you are, it, it's everybody's tuned in kind of at this time of year. So, um, you know, just I think the extra for, for me, you know, being a young player, just kind of the extra media, kind of the stage that was on was new to me coming from, you know, obviously from Windsor. Uh, you know, these are all different, you know, things that, you know, players got to worry, not worry about, but, you know, you're in front of the camera. There's, there's so many media there, especially in Florida here, where you're not really experiencing that on a day to day. And now you're kind of in this stage. Now you got every media outlet that kind of wants a piece of you. Um, that and and I guess little things kind of on the outside. I mean, you know, for young players, I mean, there, there's fr- family, there's friends coming in this situation. You want to come to games. You want to manage your time well and make sure that everything's taken care of. But you know, as far as the emotional part, I, I'm not sure there was much there. I, you know, Jeff, honestly, I, I think a young kid, you just don't know any differently. You're just going out there and you're <laughs> continue to play and, and try to put your best best foot forward. And I think when you start thinking too much, you might get in trouble. So, um, you know, for the young That's guy, I point. think the older guy, I think the older guy, obviously, you know, you see that window, right? You have an opportunity to win. Um, you know, say in this situation, you, you know, you got an Eric Stahl, you know, that's, you know, been there before, but, you know, probably the kind of last run for him, you know, an opportunity for that guy to, you know, to win and, and guys that, you know, have that opportunity. So it works both ways for the younger guys and the older guys, but it's a neat situation to be in. Alongside Ed Jovanovski, Ed, let's, uh, let's swing back to 96 here. And I, and I want to ask you about, um, then head coach Doug McLean. And I remember asking Doug, you know, what it was like uh, coaching that Florida Panthers team. And, you know, what did you do when teams like, you know, you mentioned the Pittsburgh Penguins a second ago, like when the Penguins came to town. Like w- what what type of home ice advantage did you try to ensure uh, for the Florida Panthers? And Doug said, look, when, when, the, when the Penguins were in town, you know, I always made sure the Zamboni dumped extra water on the ice, make sure that thing was like a slushy, <laughs> slow the Penguins down as much as we could. Like we tried everything. Yeah. What was Doug like as a, as a head coach? For, you know, you started your career with Doug as your head coach. What was he like as your first bench boss? Well, he was, he was great. You know, he wasn't ever, um, how can I put this? He wasn't ever short of words, you know, that the way, you know, like he, 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 it didn't matter. It didn't matter who you are. You're a player, you're a opposing player, you're a referee. When, when, whenever he had that thought, it was, it was coming out of his mouth, you know, but for a young player, I remember, I remember him walking by a scrum and, and I think at that moment, I think it was getting asked a pretty tough question in, in the playoffs. And he just lit the reporter up. Yeah. He's like, Ed, get out of here. I got this. So he kind of <laughs> gave it to the reporter saying, Listen, what are you, the kid's a teenager. What are you asking this question? Go ask a vet that question. <laughs> you know, so, um, <laughs> but he's, uh, he certainly dark. is, uh, he was a, right. He's a passionate guy. Um, he doesn't mince words very often. And, um, you know, for, for a young player, you know, coming in, he had your back. He demanded, 
but um, he, he was fun to play against, play for. Sorry. You know there, there was uh, so I was talking to Aaron Ward uh, before you came on about uh, 2006 and the Carolina Hurricanes and that Game Seven against Edmonton where nobody sat. Like I've never seen that before, and a lot of those players had never seen that before. Like for three full periods, Carolina Hurricanes fans cheered and stood. It was like going to NASCAR. Like it, they were they just did not stop standing and cheering. It was remarkable. And uh, I'm curious, your, your thoughts or your memories on, like, there was the rat phenomenon, and that was fun. But what were Florida Panthers fans like during your Stanley Cup run back in 96? Well, it, it, was, it, was, it was pretty good because when you look at that arena, it was only 14,000 feet. 14,703, I believe, was a sellout. You know, so it's, a, you know, smaller, you know, in relative to kind of what we're seeing in rinks today. But mm-hmm. you have that mixed crowd, right? You have the you have the fans that are there that you know some of them were new to the game, so it really kind of didn't really kind of really know what was going on at that moment. And then you got you know got the passionate fans that were you know constantly you know screaming and yelling. By the end of it, you know the whole you know the whole building caught on and it was electric in there. And I tell you what, the, the game that. Um, Reinhardt scored the um, empty net goal, uh, game six. I've never heard a rink so loud, um, in my time here in Florida. I mean, the place was hmm. was crazy. You know, it was it was really loud. The fans, you know, have really kind of come close to this group, Jeff, and and they're really the support is there, and. Um, it's been fun to see, but it's kind of different venue. You look at Miami kind of early on, smaller, smaller venue, now kind of bigger venue. I, I think it's, um, when you get that many people in the stadium screaming, it, get, it gets pretty electric in there. Sure. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, one thing about that rink is, um, and one thing about those fans, is it produced one of my favorite hockey pictures everywhere. It's Game 3. Um, the Stanley Cup final, and it's a picture. It's from behind Patrick Waugh. So you you see the ice, and I, I can't remember who scored. I can't remember who scored the last goal. Was it Lindsey Fitzgerald? Like, I can't remember who All scored right. the goal. But the 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 rats he's are hitting the there. ice, and yeah. and he but he's he's not he's not in the net. He's out at the top of the crease. Like a lot of goalies would go and hide in the net when the rats are coming down. Like, hey, I'm, I'm gonna get out of here. And Patrick Watt is just there, and he's taking it. He's like, "All right, I'm out here. This is your celebration. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, every rat that hits me, I'm gonna feel it, and I'm gonna use it." And you know, Patrick Watt, you competed against him right. for years, and then after that, he didn't allow another goal. It was almost like he was using that to get. It's it's a beautiful picture, and rats are all over the ice, and there's Patrick, top of the crease, just taking it as Florida Panthers fans are chucking rats. I look at that picture and I'll tell you, like I still get like hockey shivers from it. Just thinking like what's going through Patrick Waugh's mind at that time. What was it like competing against? Cause you mentioned Colorado is like the stack team. What was it like, like looking across the ice and seeing like, you know, future hall of famers that you have to compete against at that point? Yeah, they were they were definitely a tough team, and and up and down the lineup, the skill was there, the toughness was there, uh, you know, obviously the goaltending, and they were, you know, defensively they were they were solid, they were tough to penetrate. I remember coming through the neutral zone, you know, really kind of clamping down on you, just kind of forcing the dump, and they always found a way to break out of the zone. You know, they can bust down a forecheck pretty good. Um, but we were overmatched. I, you know, I, I think you look at the three series that, you know, we, we gave it our all in that series. And, you know, it's kind of like the Florida Panthers today. They're getting timely goals. We feel, feel like, you know, we weren't getting them there in, in the finals and Colorado found a way, you know, to score goals and ultimately, you know, beat us. But, you know, what were you, you were referring to earlier with the Patrick Watt, that actually came across social media, I believe, an interview you know, not too long ago, he said he went in the locker room. He's like, boys, that's the last time we're going to see a rat on the ice, <laughs> you know, and uh, he made, he, he, he made due to his promise. That's so that's Patrick sure. Waugh. Right. You know, yeah, so that was just on uh, social that, media, some like... interview that he had, you know. Wow. 
that's you know it it doesn't surprise me to listen uh, back in uh back in 86 there's a famous you know sauna scene where Larry Robinson walks into the sauna where Patrick's at cuz he was prone to the bad goal every game like one bad goal every game and uh Larry Robinson you know came into the sauna and just his towel and sat down beside Patrick and just said no more bad effing goals and then stood up and, and walked out and that was like the message from like Larry Robinson future hall of famer this kid Patrick Waugh and he, he wrote about it in his book and he's, he's talked about it a couple of different times and I wonder how much of that moment no more rats are hitting the ice part of that could be the the sauna speech from Larry Robinson back in 86 um, you were yeah. there you were on the Florida Panthers when Alexander Barkov was a rookie um, take us through what you've seen from Barkov as a kid playing with the Florida Panthers to the Alexander Barkov we see now. Yeah, you saw it early. You, you, you can see he was kind of the, that total package type player when it was going to come to fully being developed. You know, that was, you know, just on the development side of it, you know, how long it would take him. But, um, Jeff, I mean, this, you know, from faceoffs just to the long stride to the, He's a moose. He really is a moose. And he's gotten bigger over the years. His traps start, you know, coming down from his earlobes. You know, he's just a thick, thick guy. <laughs> and um, we all know, you know, to win championships in this league, you know, up the middle, you just got to be solid. And, 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 you know, Centerman, you know, typically are very smart guys. And you, you can see him the way he kind of, you know, kind of directs traffic there, you know, in the defensive zone. He seems to be that layer that's always kind of helping out the D-man. He, he's, you know, typically, you know, that third guy in, in the other area, first guy back on the back check. Um, he, he does it all. He took it a little bit of heat this year, kind of not producing, but, you know, you kind of read between the lines a little bit. He, he's been doing a lot of other things where kind of getting himself back into, uh, into where he needs to be. Uh, but he, he's, he's a guy that's in every crucial situation for for Mo out there and um you know you, you can start seeing sometimes he gets a little bit you know wanting to move that puck too much and he won't shoot the puck but he, he's got an unbelievable wrist shot and you like to see him use it a little bit more where you're not passing up a great opportunity to get it to the net but his last I would say five six games you know in the playoffs he's been really good he really has. Um, real quick, uh, before we get to, to, to game one here, and we're all waiting to get to get back to watching hockey again. Um, up until this point, and maybe the answer is just the obvious, you know, Bobrovsky dummy. Uh, who's been their MVP? Like when you look at this team, who has been the guy? Is it just the obvious? If we're handing out the Conn Smythe right now, it's Sergei Bobrovsky, or is there someone else you have your eye on? You know, in the, in the playoffs thus far. For, yeah, just 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 for Florida, just first for Florida two Florida rounds Florida. heading into the conference final. Well, why don't we just put the goalie aside? I mean, it's it's pretty evident what he's done. I think Matthew, you look at that, yep. you know, first series just being involved. Um, you can even go um, almost Sam Bennett, him coming back and being that difference type of player because he is a playoff driven type guy. You know, tough in on the forecheck, and when he's out of the lineup, it's very evident there's that hole. You know, there. So um, there, there's no question that the team wouldn't be here today, you know, if it wasn't for Bob's play. That's obvious. But you, you can go Bennett, Kachuk, and Verhage kind of get huge goals, you know, at, uh, at crucial times. So um, it's been that team effort, Jeff. It's been, it's been nice. It's a. Uh... It's it's been remarkable to watch. I, I know it might be strained for some people, but I, I I still get echoes of the 2012 Los Angeles Kings. And I know Elliot always rolls right. his eyeballs, Ed, when I when I mention this, but it's like Barkoff is Kopitar, Mike Richards is Sam Bennett, and Dustin Brown is Matthew Kachuk, and Montour is Drew Doughty, and you know Bobrovsky is Jonathan Quick. Like I don't know, man. Like the deeper this thing goes, like I'm I'm seeing they get into the playoffs late. You know, just scratch and claw their way to get in, knock off a heavyweight in the first round, knock off a heavyweight in the second round. Like I I don't know, man. It's we'll see what happens against the Hurricanes, but I'm I am getting those 2012 LA Kings vibes right. um, very much off this uh, Florida Panthers squad. Listen, I'll let you get on with your day. 
Uh, Ed, thanks for spending so much time with me today. Much appreciated. Uh, we're very much looking forward to Game 1. We're very much looking forward to the whole series. Uh, thanks for sharing your memories and expertise. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Jeff. Enjoy the game. There he is, Ed Jovanovsky, former NHL defenseman. Went to the Stanley Cup final in his rookie season with the Florida Panthers. The year of the Rats, uh, the Scott Mellonby Rats. Uh, tonight, game one, Florida Panthers facing off against the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, let's bring aboard Matt Marchese, last couple of moments here of the uh, of the program. Uh, okay, so, Maddie, what did you break while I was gone? Uh, there was a microphone, a headset, a keyboard. Oh, sorry. Wait, what you're, no, what you're supposed to, to you what you're supposed to say is <laughs> nothing, nothing, Dad. Everything's just as you left it. Um, yeah, no, we're good. So, what? Uh, that was quite a Wordo interview, eh? To kick off yes. hour two there about <laughs> the different levels and layers of dysfunction around the uh, the O nine ten Carolina Hurricanes and the major story like that it's funny too the way things will pop up so many years later and this is obviously the on-ramp for it because we have rod brindamore facing off against paul maurice here and then ed uh uh, wardo introduces uh the jim rutherford factor into all of it uh what was your takeaway from hearing that one well, firstly, I, that's not what I was expecting. Um, I was expecting a different conversation. But what I did yeah. kind of glean from it was that that's where you start to want – like we don't know the inner workings of a lot of situations, but you look back on history yep. and how some some things have happened – where you know a guy is stripped of a captaincy or something happens where a player falls out of favor and then you don't ever know why or who's behind it um you start to wonder about all that stuff and how how much we know and how much we absolutely do not know and there's a lot more that we do not know which is crazy because mm-hmm. you know again like just now who had any idea that it was Jim Rutherford that came in there and made this announcement like I didn't I wasn't aware of that and how much I know he has influence in that organization or had influence, but yeah, that was, uh, I feel like that was a little bit of a bombshell that he dropped on the show. See where that one goes. And it underscores who I think the star of this program has been. And that's Christine Simpson for that sit down with Rod Brindamore and Paul Maurice. And you'll see the whole thing and hear the whole thing tonight uh, as part of the pregame show, hockey central with your host, Ron McLean. Um, that piece runs this evening. Very much looking forward to Christine's uh, full interviews uh, with both these two gentlemen in advance of Game 1. That gets underway at PNC Arena, Carolina Hurricanes, and Florida Panthers just after 8 o'clock. Thanks to uh, everybody here on the program. You just heard from Ed Jovanovsky. Uh, previous to him, Aaron Ward. That was a big hour. Uh, Ian Mendez on the Ottawa sale and Elliot Friedman on everything else. Thank you, Jen Rolnick. Thank you, Lance Kennedy. And thank you, Matt Marchese, not just for producing, uh, but for handling the hosting duties, uh, as you always do here on this program. Again, pregame 7.30 Eastern. Puck drops just after 8. Hockey is back. Eastern Conference Final. Game 1 tonight. Enjoy it. Merrick Show returns in 22 hours. Conduct yourself accordingly.